BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You have to believe that we're all trying to strive for the better good of the, of the residents of the city of Chicago. And I think the, uh, I know that the mayor-elect uh, realizes that, and clearly that's why he felt it was important to uh, hire somebody like myself, hire somebody like John um, uh, and Tina that kind of um, show his, his feelings on how he thinks uh, Chicago should be governed. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Rich Guidas, former longtime executive director of the city's Office of Emergency Management and Communications. They operate the 911 Center. And more importantly, to this pivotal moment, the man mayor-elect Brandon Johnson has chosen to be his chief of staff. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Fran. Thanks for having me. You are a city government lifer who chose to retire just weeks before Mayor Johnson tapped you on the shoulder. Why did you choose to come out of that very brief retirement to join this new administration? What about this enormous challenge intrigues you? Well, I was impressed with the conversations that I was having with the um, uh, incoming mayor. Uh, Mayor uh, Johnson made a compelling conversation to me and impressed upon me his care for the city of Chicago and how he felt that my role uh, as chief of staff could help impact uh, success in uh, his administration. He, uh, you know, recognized that, you know, OEMC and and my role at OEMC was involved with many aspects of of government and major major events across the city that have become uh, recognized worldwide. And um, I think um, thought that, that that the relationships that I was able to build up in, in the time frame would be helpful to uh, the administration. This is a man, it seems to me, at least watching him a little bit, who knows what he doesn't know. And he's willing to find people who do. And you know city government. You've worked for three mayors, Rich Daly, Rahm Emanuel, and Lori Lightfoot. He has no executive experience. So what do you bring to the table, do you believe? Well, I think that I would be able to offer some advice uh, and give him some uh, options on some decision-making intersections. Um, You know, my job is going to be to help navigate through what may be looked as as, um, um, something that could be potentially controversial. Uh, something that uh, is going to help push forward 
uh, an agenda item. Um, um, I realize that, you know, you know, city government can seem complex and many different levels, but uh, also recognize that you don't need to make it any more complex than it already is. So I think trying to make quick decisions on, on, uh, on items that come up uh, that are going to benefit the uh, uh, residents of Chicago. Now, you are the son of a former state senator by the same name who served in the Illinois Senate with Rich Daly. What did Rich Guidas Sr., I believe is his name, teach you about politics and government that you're going to put to use now and that you've already put to use for three mayors? Yes, that's, that's a really good question. So, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, the relationships that I watched my dad build uh, in the neighborhood um, uh, where we were, we were grew up at the time, um, the friendships, the, the interactions with people, um, the, the, the conversations, knocking on people's doors and, and getting to know what their problems were and their concerns were, and then trying to make their lives that much better, a quality of life. Uh, issues and it could be simple things, you know. In, in a lot of ways, people I don't think are asking for too much. I think they want somebody to talk to, somebody that's going to listen to them, somebody who's going to care about what they care about and and offer some solutions. So I think really having the ability to foster and build relationships and and not only don't give people just this uh, a standard standard answer, give them something that they're going to benefit from. And they're going to feel like they've been heard. Yeah, you've you're a likable guy. Everybody who talks about you, they were they were relieved by your appointment. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it has a lot to do with kind of what I just mentioned, really. I think you have to be able to look people in the eyes and connect with them and make them understand that they're not just talking to you know, a shell of a person. They're talking to somebody who uh, is listening to their concerns and I try their best to identify with your feelings on it, even though, you know, I may not fully agree with them. Um, I, I think it's important that they're, 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 what they want to uh, come across is being uh, acknowledged and understood, most importantly. Your appointment followed the appointment of Daly's all-purpose, was followed by the all-purpose troubleshooter appointment, John Roberson, who will be chief operating officer. It's designed, both of you really, to reassure a business community that backed and bankrolled Johnson, I mean, uh, Vallis rather, and the nearly two dozen city council members who also supported uh, Paul Vallis. And your extensive experience really is going to be critical to a mayor who's never held executive office. What do you think is the message that Mayor Johnson was trying to send by appointing the two of you? Well, you know, John and I, um, obviously we've known each other for a number of years, and I think he uh, appreciates a lot of the qualities that he uh, hired me for uh, are very similar with John Roberson. He also has the ability to connect with with people as well and listen and try to come up with solutions. And, you know, politics aside, I mean, everybody certainly has a right to vote, has a right to choose who they want to vote for. But at the end of the day, it's in the, uh, you have to believe that we're all trying to strive for the better good of the, of the residents of the city of Chicago. And I think the, uh, I know that the mayor uh, elect realizes that. And clearly that's why he felt it was important to 
uh, hire somebody like myself, hire somebody like John um, uh, and Tina that kind of um, show his his feelings on how he thinks uh, Chicago should be governed. You are inheriting a migrant crisis that has strained city finances and resources to the absolute breaking point. A surge is expected after Title 42, the federal border controls imposed during the pandemic, expire later this week. Lori Lightfoot has declared a state of emergency. The city council's budget committee has agreed to transfer 51 million in surplus funds to pay for these expenses, but only through the end of June. After that, it will be Brandon Johnson's problem and your problem. How do you solve it? The city's out of money, out of space, out of time. Yep, yep. Fran, that is one that we have circled for attention. That is certainly one of the most challenging aspects that we have uh, in, in front of us. Um, it, you know, 33 and a half years that I've had with the city of Chicago, this has been one of the most complicated um, situations that I've ever had to deal with. And, you know, you hit it right on the head. I mean, space is an issue. Uh, how do we how do we get these people in a position where they can sustain themselves and move on to the next step in, in life um, has really been the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges, I should say, of many. Uh, identifying space is, is an issue um, and how we're going to staff the space, how we're going to create a safe environment for them to be in. And this is all happening quickly. I mean, this is a a crisis that was pushed in front of us and something that the city um, has many challenges with and they're gonna, going to continue to challenge us, uh, looks like for, for quite some time. So that one is uh, front and center on the agenda and we realize um, we got our hands full with this, but I'm confident with the people that we have in place pushing forward on all sides that we're gonna work every angle we can to um, try to put us in the best light possible. How do you get these migrants out of the police stations? They're sleeping on the floors. People can't get to the front desk. Yeah. Yep. It's a serious situation. We certainly realize that. And police, the police departments cannot be a place for uh, asylum seekers to, um, uh, to be at. We realize that we're identifying some park districts uh, in the immediate, but that brings up other challenges. Certainly, we recognize that people rely on parks for uh, entertaining their, their their kids, setting up uh, programs and keeping them busy, especially in, in spring and summer. Um, so that just creates a, another problem. There's, there's not good immediate solutions. You know, emergency situations, um, we can do anything. I think uh, OEMC and, and, and public safety uh, over the years in emergency situations, we can we can switch gears quickly and adapt. In this situation where it's more prolonged um, is where it's more challenging. I mean, we still have uh, asylum seekers that are in our shelters since uh, early September. So trying to create the next steps for them and working with the federal government uh, and certainly the, the county and the state, um, we're gonna have to figure out how to uh, put them in a position to be successful. Isn't there some large facility or several large facilities that can be used so we don't have to keep impacting individual neighborhoods, which then invites the tension about what about us? How could you be spending money on these people who don't even live here when we have been neglected for so long? How do you get them into a bigger facility? Aren't you looking at that? Yes, uh, we are looking at that. We have looked at that. We've, you know, we had a lot of ideas thrown at us, but there's, 
you know, as far as viable solutions, they've all been very costly. Now, some of the solutions we've, we, we've chosen over the last several months have turned out to be equally as, as costly in some regards. So um, that's something we're going to have to look at. These, these big box locations that uh, are across the city uh, is something we're going to have to look at investing in, getting them up to, um, getting the infrastructure up to um, uh, a, safe, a safe space to um, hopefully put uh, um, the asylum seekers uh, in that location. So which ones are you looking at? Well, I mean, you know, we spent a lot of time um, looking at, you know, uh, uh, Metro South Hospital last year. That didn't turn out to be as um, um, I, we were hopeful that it was going to work. And then when we got in there, we realized there was a lot of problems that would take a lot of time to to adjust. That was one. Uh, there was another uh, location at 75th and Pulaski that we've uh, we're going to start. Uh, we're going to take another look at. You know, these these older uh, schools that have been out of commission for some time uh, in, in a couple cases with uh, Wadsworth and, and South Shore, you know, those seem to be something that we can turn around in a um, uh, relatively short time. And that's why those decisions seem like they happen very quickly, because when you know you have uh, a few hundred people that we know are coming our way in, within a couple of days, we have to react. Uh, quickly in this situation, which caused the appearance that we were uh, that the city wasn't wasn't recognizing uh, some of the community aspects. But you know, um, realize the challenges uh, with that. We certainly uh, recognize uh, the communities that were impacted by it, and you know their their thoughts on it, and and um, um, how how they felt it was handled. And I can certainly appreciate that. And the city's going to we're going to have to do a better job of communicating uh, to residents in these areas in, in, a, in a short in a short period of time. Are there any larger facilities than those? Larger, really big, where you can put a lot of people. Well, there's areas that we're looking at. Uh, there was a uh, I think the old uh, Tribune space on Chicago Avenue was something that uh, we took a look at it. I think it was 700 West, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, there's uh, um, um, some other sites that we're that we're looking at, but we really got to get people in there to put some eyes on it before we make any 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 decisions. And that's you know that would be a team of people from the city, from the county, uh, from DFSS, just to make sure that you know they had the facilities needed, like uh, uh, bathrooms, showers. And uh, we were able, we would be able to secure it as well. What about the money? Where is the money going to come from? Yeah, and that's I mean, the, other... the, the fifty-one million that only takes you through the end of June. That barely buys you breathing time. Yep. Yeah. So, and that's just another uh, aspect of this very complicated uh, situation. You know, fi- being able to finance this operation is uh, very costly, and Obviously, there was no money that is set aside for something of this magnitude. Um, short of the federal government issuing a disaster declaration, um, you know, doesn't give us the ability to tap into any other any other funds. So certainly looking at uh, uh, different grants that could be applicable to this operation and seeing what we can salvage um, um, through the corporate dollars or through our 
through the budget office, um, looking to the state for assistance as well has all been, you know, some of the options that we use, but we're going to have to continue to be creative and continue to work with the federal government to uh, treat this, uh, uh, help us out with this crisis. The emergency declaration carries with it the possibility of calling out the National Guard. Should we do that? I would not be opposed to using the National Guard. Certainly, we've used them in the past uh, for this operation. We had them, I think, for about 45 or maybe 60 days uh, early on. Uh, I found them to be very helpful. I found them to be uh, very orderly and structured uh, in a way that uh, was very uh uh, useful, especially early on. We were able to plug them in and uh, work on nicely. So I would not be opposed uh, uh, to that at all. Then we have the tragic death of Chicago police officer Ariana Preston, who had just driven home to Avalon Park after ending her shift. Why did it take Chicago police officers 30 minutes to respond to that emergency? Would a faster response have saved her life? You know, in that situation, Fran, uh, unfortunately, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it, that it would have. I mean, that situation will be looked at and, um, and, um, uh, and looked at very closely. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tragic isn't uh, enough of a word to use in that situation. This is a young female officer, 24 years old, you know, uh, just reaching the prime of her life, uh, reaching all her goals in life and making her family and her neighborhood and the police department proud. And uh, just a very sad event. An officer wasn't dispatched to that block where she was until her Apple Watch reported a car crash at 2.02 a.m., 20 minutes after the initial shot spotter alert. Why did it take so long? We're told there was a backlog of calls and the dispatcher did not have a car to assign to the shot spotter alert. Yeah, and that's something that I'd have to look into to, uh, for a little bit more details on, on what you're what you're asking there, Fran. I, I'm not sure of the exact specifics on it. I, from what I understand, a, a car came up upon her and um, uh, in, immediately took her there, but the um, shot spotter and the time of call. I, I don't have that ha uh, handy at the moment. But this is this is right up your alley. This is what your OEMC did. I mean, what does this say about the manpower shortage at the police department? What does it foreshadow for similar problems this summer when temperatures rise, violence traditionally surges, manpower is strained by special events and lakefront activities and beach gatherings and NASCAR, Lollapalooza, and all these other Taste of Chicago and other festivals? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a fair question, and that's something that we're working uh, with Fred on. Uh, Fred Waller and his uh, chief of patrol in particular on uh, how to address um, uh, these priorities and, and getting to uh, these situations as quickly as, as we can. So um, that's certainly uh, Fred and I have had many conversations on that uh, in the last couple of weeks. And uh, we sat down yesterday and we're certainly sitting down again today as well, um, looking for a, uh, um, a solution to address some of the issues and whether it's the CTA, whether it's the uh, uh, response times, um, on the, all the special events that we have coming our way, the, the beaches that we have uh, open uh, on Memorial Day weekend, 22 beaches, 
um, that we have to keep an eye on as well. And we, we you know, have to anticipate we're going to have some nice weather and a lot of people. It sounds like another string, endless string, really, of canceled days off for Chicago police officers at a time when there are 1,700 fewer of them than when Lori Lightfoot took office. Yeah, uh, you know, manpower, people retiring. I mean, a lot of it is really people, you know, retiring. I think we had a big influx of Chicago policemen that signed up for the job in the, you know, early, early 90s, and, and they're coming to their tenure where they're eligible to retire and uh, you know that, that plays it plays a big factor I think uh, uh, identifying uh, resources that can be uh, moved around the department and and uh, uh, pushed into areas that are uh, potentially more concerning and just really adjusting resources within to kind of uh, uh, up that number that we have in the field what makes you think that there was that a faster response wouldn't have saved Ariana Preston's life? Well, I think that the situation uh, uh, happened happened very quickly, and I feel that I think that um, from what I have seen um, and and heard that the situation just happened uh, almost immediately. I think it was. Um, just seconds where uh, the situation happened in, in, in the you know the middle of the night on a on a on a dark street, and I think that um, Chicago police did the best they could to certainly get to the scene of the incident as quickly as they did. And certainly, the outcome uh, remains tragic. Right, but what makes you think she wouldn't have lived if if someone hadn't gotten there sooner than thirty minutes? Well. You know, I think, you know, the, the time frame, um, you know, still should be looked at and, and, and looked at perhaps uh, and it is look, being looked at um, by the Chicago Police Department internally and really wait for them to determine um, how that situation was um, uh, was handled. But your initial response was, no, it wouldn't have saved her life, even though there was a backlog of calls and the dispatcher did not have a call, a car to send. You said that you didn't think her life would have been saved no matter what. Why do you think so? Well, I just think that the 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 incident uh, happened e- immediate. There, there, you know, was uh, shots fired and. Um, I don't think that, I think there was, I think we're talking about seconds here, Fran. I don't think we're talking about minutes. I think it was, uh, just an immediate situation and, you know, there's, I really don't have too much more to say to it on that. I think it's something that the police department will take a look at internally as well to see if there was anything that could have been, uh, different that would have changed the outcome. But, um, I think, uh, this was just an immediate situation. Immediate meaning she died immediately, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. No. Mayor-elect Johnson has put his stamp on the city council reorganization approved by Alderman on March 30th. The number of committees is down from 28 to 20. Finance Chairman Scott Wagesbeck is out. Pat Dowell is in as finance chair. The zoning chair is Carlos Ramirez Rosa, chairman of the Democratic Socialist Caucus. Why did the new mayor choose to undo this extraordinary declaration of independence by Chicago aldermen? 
This is not independence. This is kind of like the old way of doing things where the mayor dictates to the city council. Well, I think you have to give uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson the opportunity to, um, um, you know, see how his plan is going to, um, uh, that he's enacted with the city council is going to, um, um, really how it's going to uh, be not only portrayed, but how it's going to be received and how it's going to work. I think he believes that the way he set up city council is in the best interests for the city of Chicago and certainly putting people in positions that he either has relationships with um, is obviously important just for um, just and just for just for that, just for the relationship that he has established um, with uh, certain aldermen. And certainly it's his uh, his um, his prerogative to uh, make those changes as he seems necessary. But why was it necessary to pick this fight? Was he concerned about his legislative agenda being stymied or was it a matter of showing who's boss? No, I wouldn't say that, Fran. I think that, you know, he is he, he realizes he knows his 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 person, the way he is. And from what I've come to know to, uh, of him, he wants to build relationships. He wants to uh, build relationships with people who may not have. Uh, aligned uh, themselves with him politically. I think that uh, he's been reaching out to many different aldermen and uh, acknowledging uh, them in ways that would make them feel that they are part of uh, making Chicago the, the city that it's supposed to be. And he is not opposed to uh, working with any alderman um, dis despite any difference in views that they may have had uh, uh, from the election. But why sideline so many senior aldermen at a time when the city council is losing its institutional memory anyway? You got Brandon, uh, Brendan Riley and Anthony Beal and Marty Quinn and Scott Waggis back. And even Walter Burnett, the city council dean, is not even a chairman in this lineup. He's relegated to the ceremonial role of vice mayor. Why sideline so many senior people? Uh, Inspector General Joe Ferguson, former Inspector General, has said you're almost inviting by doing that the formation of a common sense caucus that could hold the balance of power on major issues like the budget if you do this. Well, I don't think sideline is a, is a term that I would use. I think that, you know, they're not going anywhere. They're certainly part of uh, city council. I think their their expertise and their voice will continue to be heard. Um um, by many in the administration, including myself um, um, and, and, and many others. So, you know, I think that they're all going to be a part of pushing, um, um, you know, the city's city council's agenda forward, um, really no matter where they're, they're, they're sitting. And I think there's uh, respect certainly amongst themselves and the relationships that they have built um, as a aldermanic body will um, uh, continue to or will work in their favor. What message were you sending by choosing a socialist in Carlos Ramirez Rosa as zoning chair? Were you trying to send a message to the development community? No, I think that, you know, the mayor elect and others in his administration has had conversations with uh, uh, Alderman Rosa and they were they were confident uh, in those conversations that he would be 
um, uh, he would be able to work with uh, developers and uh, whoever necessary to um, um, work on, on that committee. I think um, this was uh, uh, probably uh, uh, a few few good conversations with the alderman that, that gave them uh, gave the mayor the confidence that he would be the right guy for the job. And that he'll be more reasonable than people fear is what you're saying. That's the message that I, that I'm getting, and that's the way I understand it. Yes, that he's not going to be unreasonable in his demands for affordability or taxes or whatever. He's going to move things along. He's going to be not a uh, 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 you know as extreme as people think socialists will be. I think he'll certainly make his voice uh, clear, and I think he'll. Uh, give his opinion on things, but at the end of the day, I think he's going to do what is uh, uh, best for the city of Chicago to um, move the city in the right direction. And he's not going to hold up developments because of unreasonable demands. Every mayor needs building. You need development. You cannot stand in the way of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we listen. We we want Chicago to thrive, and 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 part of making Chicago thrive is is building, putting cranes up in the sky, putting people to work, and certainly uh, the alderman is aware of that. And um, you know, like I said, you know, uh, you know, he's in that position because of the conversations that he's had with the mayor elect, and the mayor elect's confident that uh, he's going to get the job done for us. What kind of relationship do you expect this new mayor to have with the city council? We saw how the council balked at Lori Lightfoot's heavy-handed, kind of dictatorial, high and mighty style. What do you think this mayor's relationship with the council will be? Well, I find the mayor to be a uh, very personable in, in in a lot of ways. I think you're going to find him to be um, um, a, a reasonable person, somebody who um, can address the their the alderman's concerns for their particular area, uh, um, number one, and also perhaps their their vision on on other aspects of of city government. I think his administration is also going to be responsive um, to the alderman as well. I mean, I um, uh, as you know, and, and and many of the aldermen know, I've always made myself available to um, to listen uh, to any of their concerns and tried to. Um, assist them, um, you know, political agendas aside, there's still work to be done and there's, there's, there's still movement that needs to be moved and uh, nobody wants to hold anything up unnecessarily for any other reason, um, uh, any other reason that may be perceived as uh, uh, wrongly or, or rightly as, as right or wrong reason. So, um, yeah, the mayor-elect has also met with business leaders about the tax, their opposition to his tax plans, his $800 million in newer increased taxes that he needs to bankroll the social programs that are the cornerstone of his anti-violence strategy. Uh, what flexibility has he shown to them? What is he willing to give up? They don't like the financial transaction tax. They hate the head tax. They don't want an increased hotel tax. I think those conversations are still um, being had. I, you know, I don't think any any um, solid decision on anything has been um, uh, put forth as of yet. I think that's something that the administration is going to have to have an opportunity and put some eyes on 
um, you know, the financial areas and, and see, where, see where we're at as a city, what we can work with uh, immediately and what we have to plan for for the future. Mayor Lightfoot claims that she's leaving her successor with a record low $85 million shortfall. Do you believe those numbers? And she appears also to be boxing the new mayor in by assuming and recommending that he retain the automatic escalator tying property taxes to annual increases to the rate of inflation and devoting all 700 million of the surplus she claims she's leaving for this budget year and and, uh, last to prepaying pensions. Will the mayor do those things? Will he keep the escalator? Will he devote all the surplus to prepaying pensions? So, Fran, that's another, the, the finances of the city, that's, that's something that we're going to have to do a deep dive in uh, immediately. And those conversations are already being had to some, to some level. We've, as you know, we've, uh, we've interviewed for our CFO position, our, our um, uh, other, other financial system, uh, uh, systems in the city. Um, we're going to have to see if those numbers align the way that they've been described to us and make sure they, uh, we understand them um, exactly how the outgoing administration uh, understands them before we can agree or disagree on those numbers all being um, uh, correct. So you, you have your doubts about whether that's the case? You know, I personally haven't been able to look into all of them uh, Directly, certainly others in the administration have had um, uh, conversations, uh, probably a little deeper dive on the financial part. Um, but, you know, I think I think it's it's fair to say that um, we have to have our team go in there and take a, a, a good look at that to make sure that, again, we're aligned with their thought processes on where we actually are uh, financially as a city. But the mayor also campaigned on a promise not to raise property taxes. Is there any way that he keeps the automatic escalator tying annual increases to the rate of inflation? I think the mayor intends to, um, um, you know, certainly keep all his promises and certainly make any necessary adjustments to anything that would have come uh, up on the campaign based on um, what we know once we're actually in, in, in office. I think there's um, um, a lot that still needs to be looked at. And, you know, come Monday morning, we'll be at City Hall and be able to uh, uh, roll our sleeves up and, 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 and get to work, certainly after the inauguration, that is. The mayor also is not ready to clean house, according to Jason Lee, his senior advisor. Um, have you asked the Lightfoot people to stay on for a few months to buy you some time to assemble a cabinet. And are there any members of her cabinet that you plan to keep? Yeah, I think it's, uh, we have asked everybody to, to stay. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, three months was a, uh, a time period that, that we gave, but, um, you know, we know these, we know our commissioners, we know that they, that they work hard and certainly they have all good intentions. I think it's fair during transitions to be uh, open to, to future conversations uh, just to ensure that those uh, relationships um, remain solid. And certainly the uh, mayor has the uh, mayor can make adjustments as needed. But uh, at this time, we are moving forward with the current structure that's in place. Um, uh, people that are in, in, in those spots and um, we haven't asked anybody to, to, to leave. So you've asked them to stay for three months at least? Yes. 
Yes. And have uh, are there some that you'd like to stay permanently, maybe? Uh, you know, there's some stars on that cabinet. You know, Alison Arwoody did a wonderful job during the pandemic, even though she classed with the teachers union. You have a housing commissioner, Marisa Navarro, who did very well with the housing community. Planning and Development Commissioner Maurice Cox has been hailed as a visionary in some circles. Aviation Commissioner Jamie Ree is, is, is presiding over this massive O'Hare expansion. Uh, the budget director, Susie Park, and controller Reshma Sony. Uh, are there people in that group of people or someone else I failed to name who you want maybe to stay permanently? You know what, Fran, you mentioned a lot of, of names there, and certainly they're all very smart people who who, who have worked hard. And um, it, it, it's fair to say right now, everybody is, 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 nobody has been asked to move on. There's uh, a, a lot of talent there that you had mentioned and beyond. And, you know, I personally uh, obviously have relationships with all of them uh, as, as well. Some may choose to leave uh, on their own for, you know, a variety of, of different reasons. So city government, as wonderful as it is uh, and is, um, 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 as satisfying as it can be, it's, it's, a, it's still a difficult job to do. And whether you're working hard on your daily basis, moving your department uh, uh, ahead, you know, you have to balance it out with, with, with family life and other responsibilities that you may have personally. It's uh, just, uh, it's a diff- it can be a difficult challenge. So uh, you've asked everybody to stay for three months. Why wasn't the mayor-elect ready with a cabinet as Daly was, for example? He took office with an entire cabinet. Why wasn't Brandon Johnson ready with his own picks? Did he just get a late start on the transition, or is it, is it just his personality that wants to give these people a chance? Well, I think he certainly wants to be fair and give everybody a chance. Certainly, I think Daly. You know, Daly was in office for over twenty years, and he's uh, Mayor Daly was in office for over twenty years. He he had the, um, 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 you know, the. You Other know, offices, you mean, before he took over at City Hall? Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I just think, you know, um, the current um, commissioners that are in places right now, I think uh, we want to give them the opportunity to show uh, this mayor what they can do and, and what, what, they're, what they're about before any of those types of decisions of moving anybody out uh, would take place. The mayor-elect was highly critical of the CTA during the campaign. It's a system still struggling to attract half the riders that uh, were there pre-pandemic. Unreliable service, violent crime, lack of cleanliness, unruly behavior. Will Dorville Carter be replaced? Doesn't he need to be? I think, um, you know, I've had several conversations with Dorville Carter uh, in the last uh, couple weeks and you know Dorville is a he's a smart person he's uh certainly uh you know transit is um um is is what has made him who he is uh you know you're dealing with a, a system i think in our peak our system we had 1.6 million riders uh right now i think our number is somewhere closer to 900,000 if i'm not mistaken um i know his heart is in the job i think there's going to be uh many conversations regarding public safety and um, um, certainly, um, you know, bus uh, reliability. And, you know, we got some big projects in the forecast with the um, 95th Street uh, red line. Um, so a lot of conversations ahead with Dorville Carter. I look, I look forward to um, uh, working with him and um, um, 
circling uh, public safety uh, on our CTA and uh, also these these bigger projects that uh, that he's a part of. So you're saying he could stay? I'm saying that we're going to work with him and we're going to have continued conversations with him. There's He's been asked to stay like everybody else has been asked to stay. For the three and months. It, yeah, and it's fair to, um, I think it's fair to say that we're going to continue to work closely with him and his, his, uh, his operation at CTA. I know there's a lot of good, hardworking people there that are currently uh, working with him. And, and I know that they, um, you know, they want to continue to get the job done. Right. But the aldermen do not like him. He has been very heavy handed with them. He he didn't deign to appear before him until he was summoned like four times, five times. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, we're, we may be advising him uh, in a way that would have maybe been differently from uh, the last administration. I'm not sure. Um, I was not part of the, those conversations with with Dorval, but certainly um, the relationships that we have with city council, the relationships that uh, the mayor has and the mayorships that we've developed over the years, um, we're going to make sure that uh, um, not only that they're being heard, but uh, their concerns are, are being addressed. Pedro Martinez, it's public schools. He made a rare, rare joint appearance with CTU President Stacey Davis-Gaith in Springfield to lobby uh, for additional funding recently. So, He's going to stay, right? Pedro's, uh, yeah, Pedro's been given the same uh, conversation, and um, uh, we're, uh, we're looking forward to working with him uh, as well. Rich Guides, thank you so much for joining us. You have your hands full, sir. I wonder how long you'll be out of retirement. You think you might yeah. be headed back to retirement in a couple of years? This is a burnout job. You know that. Oh, I know. You know, Fran, it's uh, out of the frying pan back into just, just another fryer. So it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm certainly up for the challenge. And, um, you know, there's only one way to do it. And that's the right way to do it. So there we okay, go. Okay, well, put on your asbestos suit and get ready for the fire, sir. And I wish you, you the very best of luck. And uh, we will see you all next week. Thank you, Fran. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.